One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, welcome to the 239th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by brand new patron, Kevin Schumacher. I'm Warren Kaplan. I'm Adam Lowe. Today, Oren and I are catching up. It's been kind of a while since we've had a Matt and Oren episode, which is what we call them on the spreadsheet that I use to keep track of everything. But yeah, we're just catching up. Uh, we're, we both have a decent number of jobs going, so we thought it would be a good time to catch up, chat, and we kind of have figured out a few different phases of things that we are all dealing with as everyone sort of begins to get back to work. So we are talking about pitching and also production and like set a kit basically, and then also a little bit of workflow. But before that, we are actually going to talk to Liz Manishil, one of the co-hosts of Making Movies is Hard. She answers a listener question about film festivals. And before we catch up and before we talk to Liz, we are going to remind you that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's a place where if you feel like you get anything out of this podcast, you can uh, give us a few bucks, a dollar, four dollars. Do you know a crazy thing, Matt, is that our last four patrons uh, came in at the $10 level. That's because those hats are so dope. That's why. Yeah. So at $10, you get a Just Shoot It podcast hat, which is just all the rage in the Just Shoot It community. I, I will say I wore one on set and no one recognized it. <laughs> did anybody ask you about it? No one asked me about it, no. <laughs> did any did you ever point to the just shoot it text well, instead it, of telling it, people to just shoot something? To be honest, I was wearing a KN ninety five mask and then my hat and then a face shield with the headband. Wait, you wore a face shield on your set? <laughs> you have to because I was in a certain zone where I would be close to actors who would be unmasked. So yeah, our, our COVID managers made it made me wear a face shield. Oh, interesting. I was happy to. It's a little hard to see the monitor when you've got a layer of plastic. In were, were all your actors tested? Yes. Wow. And the extras? Yeah, everybody was tested. Wow. Anyway, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if uh, you yourself want to bury a hat under layers of uh, PPE, then you can check it out at $10. Otherwise, just a dollar. You know, we'll say your name on the podcast and everyone will be happy. Okay, you're going to hear Liz talk about festivals right now. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. We are here with Liz Manichel, and she is an expert at all things indie distribution. She has her own consulting firm. How do people pay you to do this? Oh, they just email me and I have uh, separate packages per project. 
And the email is just lizmanishall at gmail.com. But we are going to extract some free information out of her <laughs> as a teaser, but don't hold back. This is hundreds of dollars worth of uh, free advice. Basically, we have had a handful of listeners who've written in with a question that Oren and I were like, well, yeah, this is a really good question. We should answer it. But we don't want to give the wrong answer. We, we should call Liz because we don't know. So I'm going to read one real quick from a listener named Debbie, who is a longtime fan. Thank you so much for sending this, Debbie. She says, hi, I'm a big fan, blah, blah, blah. I have two films that are ready to send to festivals, and I'm wondering what your take on how important premiere status is. We have a chance to premiere at a smaller festival, but would that jeopardize any networking opportunities if we don't premiere at a top tier? And since everything is online in 2021, does it even matter? So there's a lot to unpack there, right? There's the 2020, you know, festivals right. are on hold of it all. And then also the question of the premiere status premiere status basically. and then just to hop on just to latch on one other listener question from marshall lemming he made this awesome science fiction thesis film in film school and he also was wondering if the genre of your film should how it affects the festival submission and and if there's any specific advice for that as well so in 10 minutes liz <laughs> Three huge, huge questions. Well, yeah. Let's start off and then you can reroute me if I'm going too much on a tangent. Um, I asked two of my buddies in the festival world. I'm going to name check them, but we'll see if I get in trouble. Clay Pruitt, who works at Seed and Spark and his uh, programs for Palm Springs and amongst other things. He's just a wonderful human. And Shorts or international? Just out of curiosity. Shorts. Shorts. Shorts that's the one they're famous for, right? Palm Springs they're Shorts both Fest. Actually they're both pretty, pretty famous. reputed yeah, yeah. festivals. Um, but Clay Pruitt is fabulous. And then Andrew Peterson from Provincetown Film Festival, who also runs Film North. So he comes from the film artist support organization background, as well as the festival programming and festival supervision background. And I won't, in case I get in trouble for name checking them, I won't attribute each speaking point to either of them. I'll just... We'll just mm -hmm. assume one of them said one of these things. Also, it's an amalgamation of your experience as well, yes. having premiered multiple films yes. and worked at Sundance and then also worked in distribution and promotion. So yeah. there's a lot of uh, different cooks in that kitchen. Let's of course, say. the kitchen of my yeah. brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say first thing off the bat, it's something maybe people take it for granted, but we should say it out loud. The idea of getting into a top tier festival will be pivotal and will change your life and the lifespan of your film. So if there, if you have the extra funds to pay the submission waiver to a Sundance, a Tribeca, a South by, a Cannes, whatever it is, you should. The Laurel's value still remains even in a pandemic. And also just from personal experience. Wait, I sorry, know but when you say waiver, is that the submission fee? Submission fee. Sorry. I'm okay. so sorry if I said waiver. Submission fee. But just from personal experience, I can say that Sundance does a lot of research and has an immense number of spreadsheets that they have with data of people who have submitted their ratings. They have, you know, screening reviews. And for me, it's worth $50 to get on Sundance's radar, if, even if I don't get selected. Mm -hmm. So I just want to You're say saying because those documents, they're tracking you, they're, they're tracking, tracking your progress, they're trying to program people who are in it for the long haul, right? Persistent like people, filmmakers. Persistent, yeah, filmmakers who are churning out good work. I would make that value judgment. I would say that I'd rather get on their radar. Like I'd rather just like be on as many spreadsheets in front of Sundance programmers as possible just for like the value of 
recency effect just for the value of right, like the name familiarity. being in front of their eyes. Yes. Someone had to type made... the the words Liz Manischel yes. into a spreadsheet and that, that's worth 50 bucks it, for you. Their, I've yeah. literally never is. heard this piece of advice before and it seems it's, it's <laughs> like the biggest silver lining I've ever heard of not getting into Sundance. So... I just want to say that, yes, even though we're in a pandemic and uh, the future festivals is a little bit in question, top tier festivals, their their laurels are still valuable. Mm-hmm. They're still and currency within the, yes, the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Distributors no matter are still how many of your friends tell you, like, it's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. <laughs> it does matter. It does matter. What uh, Intel I've kind of learned is that in mid tier festivals, that like kind of echelon of like Provincetown, Woodstock, this like upper mid-tier level of film, Nantucket, there's actually a lot of distribution names that are either programming or constantly in communication with the programmers. So if you're looking to open doors for distribution, those mid-tier festivals still have a lot of values in a pandemic. But what I want to make sure we're pushing forward is you got to get some value from them. So if it's a small festival, like your wonderful listener is referring to, are they offering a ticket split to the filmmaker? Are they providing a good dose of networking events? If not, what does the laurel mean to you? It's just a bunch of leaves. It doesn't really mean anything. Would you say that for a filmmaker who maybe just needs the personal validation of having their first set of laurels, is that worth it to you? For a feature, it's still you still need to prioritize the biggest festival that you could get into as your premier festival. So I would say you only accept that smaller festival as your premier if you've investigated all other. And what if they're shorts? The I, I don't think Debbie specifies, but I think a lot of our listeners are sitting on a short as well. So like, is there a difference for you? No, I would say shorts. There's a lot more um, open mindedness in the shorts programming community, and you can even have your film sometimes online, and a festival will still program you. So I think there's a lot more freedom and flexibility. But I do think you play it safe because there's, you know, whatever. Maybe it's foolish. Maybe it's delusional. But there's always the chance that you may catch the eye of someone. And you're saying it's it's worth it. So I always push that. Is the takeaway? Yeah. Yeah, and unless it's waiting a year. What if it is waiting a year? You know, if it's waiting a year, it's waiting a year. I would say. Ask some of your meanest, most honest friends to watch the film and give you the lowdown of exactly what they think. So I I love the point you said, Liz, about ask your meanest friend, right? Because I think that uh, I want to take an informal poll of the the three of us. When someone has sent you a short or a feature, have you ever been like, that's going to get into Sundance? And have you ever been wrong one way or the other? Or you let, not even Sundance, a, a big a top tier festival is what I mean. Yeah, I've seen things where I thought that's gen- genuinely objectively great. I have. And oftentimes that's validated, right? Like most of the, t- what, what I'm getting at really is that like your point of ask, ask your meanest friends. Now, I predict. think it's actually easier to predict. If you're asking your, re- your, oh. your friends that really know what's getting programmed and have like been around and are seeing that stuff. You know if you've got a fighting chance at that top tier, like it's got to be super weird or super topical or super social or have movie stars in it. Or you're suited up with agents yeah. that, you know, have a track record at Sundance. But I, right. but if you look at shorts, there has been a strong history of Sundance filmmakers who um, 
came out of nowhere, right? The myth of the Sundance discovery does happen in shorts. Certainly, but I'm saying with those circumstances, you see the short before they submitted it and you can say whether with a degree of certainty whether they've got a shot or not. Probably. Do you know what I mean? Probably, yeah. And that most of the time... I've never seen a short that I thought would get into one of those festivals before it played in one of those festivals. But I have seen many shorts that have played at those festivals, and I'm like, yeah, duh. Yeah, so maybe hindsight is 2020, but like, I don't know that I've seen anything where I've been like, that deserves to be at Sundance. Yeah. And then it was. Well, and just kind of spinning off of what you're saying, Matt, like I'm doing some consulting with um, a nonprofit called the Film Collaborative, and they're known for supporting filmmakers. And I was part of a consultation where they told the filmmaker, you're not going to get this distributor. You're not going to get this sales agent. And it was the most refreshing conversation I've been a part of for years because they just treated the filmmaker like a grown up and said, no, it's unlikely. Let me not waste your time. Yeah, unlikely is different than never going to happen or you're never going to get there. Yeah. Right. You're but, saying but, based on watching the short, they yeah. would say that? Yeah. I, and I think that's healthy. I think that's important. Right. So, like, really, what we're saying is just be hard on yourself, interrogate the film. It's okay if you're not a genius this time around. And I say submit you know? just to get in front of programmers or screeners, but that's only if you have that liquidity. If you are laid off from a job and you're in a global pandemic, you know, like maybe you don't apply to 20 top tier festivals with $50 a pop. It's not worth it. It's not worth the financial struggles that you're going to undergo. But do you still submit even if you think your short has like some amazing parts and some not so amazing parts? Like... Do you, like, is it bad to get on the radar with a bad, with something that is not great? No. Because every, your next film is going to be judged on its own as it's on its own because you're going to have a different team, most likely, and you're going to have different assets and different demerits. <laughs> um, no, I think it's fine. Well, I'm just but I, to I guess going back to the point of like, should I wait a year? Right. Like, if you don't really have a shot at some of these festivals, if it's not the right film, then maybe waiting a year and like, putting your eggs in that basket for a while longer like the likelihood that like you drag your feet on making that next film is higher right like as a person who did that do you know what i mean like i love my my last short a gray one i think is really great but you know i did take some time and like wait to hear back from festivals and i could have just gone and made another one you could have put it online and i'm you know we interviewed uh, michael callahan you know michael callahan Um, We interviewed him about his short that he made seven years ago. And I think it's still true what he said, which is that he had access to many more people putting it on Vimeo than he did. And it was like short of the week, Vimeo. I mean, it was like he did the whole digital release. But I still think that's true today. I just will go back on and harp on that it's like, yeah, if you are in summer and it's time for Sundance submissions or TIFF submissions and you can afford to go for it. And if it's not and you realize you don't have that quality, yeah, don't sit on it for a year. And as filmmakers, we only have so many films in us. I'm I not think. sure that's true. And um, life <laughs> may, is short. Maybe. I physically, think sure. I mean, yeah. I, physic- like, physically, I cannot yeah, work that's on 3,000 yeah. films this year, um, right? That is true. So, you are right. But I, So I guess maybe the takeaway is like Debbie – if you figured out a way to continue to make things, then then maybe your timeline is a little different and it's okay to wait and see how things turn out if you really feel like you've got a, a fighting chance at some of these high, higher profile festivals. But don't let us stop you either way. Right? And that's because the premiere status is relevant. Yeah. Right? And um, 
to the to the other question, I want to say that like I mean, the, one of the reasons why I'm going into genre, I'm I'm writing and directing a horror film as my next feature, is because you already have this audience, you already have these resources, you already have a pathway. Genre is incredibly relevant to your outreach, your marketing, your distribution, and you have so many cool festivals and distributors who will be allies of yours. So that um, I forgot who asked the question, but they said, Marshall, does it matter? And it's like, it very much matters. And you're very lucky if you're making genre fair because you get a leg up in um, audience building. That sweet spot is if you can do, I'm doing big air quotes here, everyone, elevated genre. If you can be in Beyond Fest and South By... Yeah, yeah, or Fantastic yeah. Fest, which is kind of like a combination. Yeah, there's a there's a ton of really great genre festivals out there, and also a lot of you know uh, other like more mainstream festivals have a midnight program, and so those movies fit in there as well. So I agree. I think it's a great idea, Liz. Thanks. Well, if anybody wants to talk uh, shop at any point, they could just email me mm-hmm. for one ninety nine a minute. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but seriously, how how what kind of person should come to you? My favorite clients so far have been people about to release. Maybe they have their festival premiere or maybe they don't, but they finish their feature and they want some advice, a counsel, a partner to advise them what's a wrong turn, what's a right turn, who are the right partners, who are the right collaborators. I have like a package where I just consult with someone an hour after watching their film and I just give them recommendations of every single pathway they could go down. And I'd say that's a good start. And then if they wanted a long-term thing, I'm open to it. But ultimately, I try to be as efficient as possible that that hour is all you need to get you off the ground. And so that pathway might include a way to make their money back or it might include a way to elevate their name and kind of get... Right, like it depends on their goals, but my my like mission as a consultant is transparent, honest, accountable teammates who talk like humans, who are not phony, who are kind, good people, good companies that aren't going to take advantage of you. So that's like my my litmus test when I talk to people. Awesome. So Liz Manishill at gmail dot com. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, we'll post that in the show notes. And thanks so much for talking to us and. Uh, Debbie and Marshall, we hope you get into all the festivals. Let us know how it goes. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Liz. That was awesome. Now, Matt, it's just you and me talking about what we've been doing. Yeah, man. I'm dying to know you've, before we started recording, you told me that you had a thing that you've noticed about the way that you're writing treatments. And now that people are finally shooting again, treatments are again important in our lives. We're back on Shot Deck, we're back on Film Grab, we're back on Google Images and Pinterest and Pexel and all the places where you're you're sourcing images. What's your secret, Oren? I, I'm dying to know because I uh, love money. Well, yeah, my secret is actually related to the image thing. I have four treatments this past week. I've worked on four treatments. I had one due on Monday, two due on Friday, and then another one starting on Friday. So it's kind of crazy because, you know, things were pretty slow in the middle of the quarantine. And now getting like shortlisted and writing a treatment is not something that happens that often for me. And so having four in one week is kind of a big deal. And I usually spend about three solid days making a treatment. And so I had to cram 12 days worth of work into five days while also working on some VFX jobs, including your job. <laughs> so unfortunately, I don't have any tricks as to how to write treatments faster. But one of the treatments, the one I turned in on Monday, I got the job. 
So usually, just a reminder for people that haven't listened to our past episodes or aren't super familiar with the commercial world, usually an agency wants to make a commercial. They come up with a script and some ideas for what that commercial will be. They will have directors submitted to them, sometimes three, sometimes five, sometimes a hundred. And out of those directors, they usually select three directors that they'll meet with and they'll have those three directors write a treatment and get a bid from the production company of how much they'll charge to make this commercial. And then they end up picking one of them. So getting to the shortlist is really hard and it's usually 99% based on the relationship your company has with this agency and your real like what commercials you've shot in the past. Right. So if your producer has worked with them before and they have a good working relationship and then you have a, a spot that's similar to the ones that they're trying to make, that's kind of the magic combination that you're looking for. Yeah. So to get on that short list is usually really, it, it's really hard because it, it's some it's you against like 95 other directors and you don't even get to talk to anyone. They just look at your work. So one of the things that I was on the shortlist for is this kind of 90s style workout video comedy thing. <laughs> and I had done these like fake infomercials for Converse a few years ago that have kind of this 90s. It's 90s style, but it's very contemporary at the same time. And they felt like that was similar. And so they had me pitch on it. So that's one of the four treatments. Anyway, so once you... You're, you're still only one out of three once you get this this option. So how do you beat out the other two directors is the hard part. And one thing, and that's why I will work really hard on my treatments. You know, I think back in the day, and Jordan Brady on his podcast will talk about this, you would write one or two pages, you'd write some paragraphs, some ideas, maybe include a couple images. And if they loved your idea and you had the best idea, you would get the job. And I don't doubt that that could still work. I saw a treatment from Mike Mills once for a music video that was like two pages and he got it, but he's a famous music video director. Do you know it, what, what video that was? It was for the national. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. It yeah. was kind of a big, it was kind of like a lemonade style, like Beyonce's video. It was like a 40 minute, it's basically an, an album video. Spike Jones just says like, Oh, I got an idea. Why don't we make it all blue? They'll be like, yeah. yes, Spike Jones, I mean, you got the job. Th those guys are rarefied error, though. That's, that's right. a different deal, right? But when you're a not famous director, what I find is the way that I win a job is that I have literally covered every single thing you could think about <laughs> in the commercial. Wardrobe, casting, I'll find a specific thing that I'll write a couple pages on. You'll, you'll write basically a page or two plus really great images on like every single teeny tiny detail yeah so a 30 second commercial i'll write a 20 to 30 page treatment and yeah one of those pages might be a picture of liam neeson so one of the things i pitched on is for a company that is selling coffee and i found this awesome picture of liam neeson drinking <laughs> out of a cup of coffee and so i just you know it's just a full page with just liam neeson and it just says like this coffee is taken and i put the logo of the company on the coffee cup right like just dumb things like that but what i'm doing you know, obviously, as I'm creating a tone, I'm pitching mostly on comedy things. So I'm trying to get a lot of jokes out as much as I can. If I find an image that I can think of a joke for that is related to the subject, then I'll put it in. But the thing that I've been noticing a lot is because I make these treatments with like 50 images in them, the reason I do that is because I used to try to find, you know, the five perfect images. Oh, this is a commercial about a cheetah in a convenience store. 
let me find a perfect picture of a cheetah in a convenience store and I'll Photoshop the cheetah into the convenience store and that's it. That's that's the image of this commercial. But you show that to someone and they'll be like, hmm, well, this convenience store looks kind of upscale. I was thinking downscale, you know, and this cheetah is like, looks cartoony and I was thinking realistic. And so what I, I've been doing is I will just pull like 100 photos of a cheetah, 100 photos of a convenience store, like 30 funny things with a fountain drink machine. And, and I'll just start building a giant catalog. I usually pull like 300 images and I use about 50 of them for my treatment of every possible thing you could do. You know, it takes place in a coffee shop. So I'll show a cool coffee shop, a crappy coffee shop. I'll take a picture of myself at my coffee shop because I know at the last page I'm going to say thank you, you know, for reading this. I love coffee. This is my own coffee shop. They're really mean to me. Whatever, you know. That's a good move there, actually. I think that you're really good at, like, incorporating yourself into a treatment. And that's not something that you should do all throughout the entire thing. But, like, the thank you at the end. Typically, you'll have, like, some sort of personal note that wraps things up of like thank you so much i love drinking coffee here you know etc etc and i always will use a headshot of of me you know but it's so much better if it's something that's specific and personality driven about their product yeah so i have this picture of me and um, tim meadows from this thing we worked on together where i'm holding a business card in my hand um so it's me holding a business card next to tim meadows and i probably made 20 treatments in a row where i just photoshopped that business card out and put in like engine oil or you know a a loofah or whatever whatever the commercial was for but then recently i've been just taking my own photos like i just pitched on this thing that had magic in it and my wife had bought me this magic for dad's book for father's day or magic tricks for dad so i just just pictured me with that book just saying hey i love magic by the way yeah yeah Um, that's a a very charming gift yeah call kara yeah uh Um, and then this coffee thing it's kind of about how like you know, people in coffee shops can be kind of snobby sometimes. And so I happen to have literally 20 selfies of my daughter and me walking to or at the coffee shop over the last four years. So I just made a page where it's like, here's a picture of me every three months from 2016 to, to now. The, like the last few ones have me wearing a mask and my daughter wearing a mask. And these people at this coffee shop still do not know my name. You know? <laughs> it's nice to have a, have a joke to it. So, so here's a couple of things I'm hearing, though, because I, I think that there are people listening at home who are like, oh man, I'm wondering what I should do. I, I just got my first treatment or something like that, or I can't wait to get my first treatment or, yeah. or maybe by the I, way, I think this or I've been doing this a thousand times. Yeah, yeah it yeah. could work on a web show, on a TV show and anything. It's, it's a, my advice that I actually haven't even given yet is more related to when you're pitching on other people's creative material. So if someone gives you a script and you're trying to direct it, or if someone gives, you know, you're up for a commercial or a web series or anything, and you're trying to convince them you're the right person. So I'll just give my advice because then I want to hear what you're going to say. But the feedback I've been, my advice is based on this feedback I've been getting, which is the last 10 pitches, everyone has said, even on jobs I haven't gotten, wow, I can picture this commercial so perfectly from the images you've shown. I just look through this and I know exactly what you're thinking. I know exactly where it's going to take place and what these people look like and what the wardrobe is and all this stuff. Like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for showing me your vision of the commercial. But the truth is that I have literally just showed them every picture, you know, like this treatment I just did. I have a photo from Marriage Story and I have a photo from the Amy Schumer show. 
you know it's like look look at that tonal range it's like a drama a relationship drama and like a wacky broad comedy you know one creative is thinking of this more as an amy schumer thing and one is thinking of this more like over the top dramatic thing and they both see their version of this commercial in my treatment um and i've I've been doing that for a while and I've always thought like, well, I don't have a cheetah in a convenience store, but I have a great picture of a cheetah and a great picture of a convenience store. But now I'm realizing like, I'm going to show seven pictures of cheetahs. And now I'm going to show seven different animals in these things. And I'm just going to make cheetah jokes about that animals. Like this animal is not as fast as a cheetah or whatever. I'll just try to rationalize why that image is in there because I know it's like tonally in the world that I'm trying to show. And it used to be, I was averaging out an idea, but now I'm kind of just giving all the ideas so that no matter what they can, they have something to they connect see to. themselves in it. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Because when I was doing like five images, sometimes people would be like, yeah, I wasn't really thinking, you know, they'd be wearing all white or something like that. And you're like, well, yeah, that's not the point. This is just a picture of Madonna. Right. Or right. 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 Uh, maybe I wonder if you're selling yourself short a little bit because it's not that you're putting every single possible idea in there. It's just that when you've got, because I've seen plenty of your treatments, right? Like, I think I've seen the the recent ones as well. I think that actually by adding more images, but not literally every single image in the world, you're still, you're still curating it, but that it actually gives you a more specific understanding of what you're going for because you start to see the patterns and it does still average out. Do you know what I mean? It's, I don't, I, you're not pitching all things to all people, but you're you are still giving them more to sink their teeth into. Yeah, and the way I'm presenting it might sound a little subversive like I'm trying to trick people into picking me and the truth is that's not the case. What is the case is when I'm hedging my bets when I'm saying, you know, we could set this in like this fancy mansion or we could set this in this little cottage. I'm thinking out loud and I'm involving the creative team, the people I'm pitching to in that, which is Instead of saying, yeah, we're going to set it in this cool pool house and it's going to look like this and it's going to look like this. I'll say, I'm super excited by this. And I feel like we can go, you know, two different ways. Like we could two set really it in cool this, directions. Like, right. We could put it yeah. in a mansion. I'll do the mansion or we can do it in a cottage or and then I'll make some joke. We can make it a cottage inside a mansion, whatever. But but you're pulling, you know, you're not pulling a Victorian and a McMansion and the, you know, Versailles and, a you know, like it's not like it's still those mansions still have some cohesion to them. Do you know what I mean? And the cottages still have some cohesion to them. And like, again, the more that you put on there, the more you see the commonalities between those ideas. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's, it's maybe another way of showing like, Hey, I'm collaborative. Yeah, for sure. So I'm kind of thinking out loud in my treatment and showing them things. And even when I present the treatment, I start feeling like they're like, Oh, I love Amy Schumer or like, Oh, Amy Schumer is like, so not, you know, I'll start like picking up what the agency is dropping about these images. It's almost like, you know, when you go um, pick upholstery for your couch, you don't go into the shop and you're like, yeah, we have like a green living room. So what should we do? They're not like do do the purple fabric. They're like, well, let's look at this book. Let's start flipping through this. And and they're trying to go to a place and find something, but they are showing you the their way there because they want you to maybe stop them and say like, you know what? The corduroy is kind of cool. So that's kind of how I'm rethinking about presenting treatments and pitching is more like, hey, this is the journey I went on and these are the steps I took. Even this like, I'm working on this 90s thing or I haven't gotten the job yet, but I'm pitching on it and they made this Bob Ross reference 
And I said, I love Bob Ross. He's awesome. You know, to me, he feels like I looked him up. You know, he, he died in the 90s. You know, he, his heyday was like 80s. I say he feels very 80s to me, but like... Or even 70s, really. Like that... His that styling, styling feels yeah. 70s. Yeah. 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 Um, and I was like, what if, you know, when I think of 90s, I think of like Max Hedrum. And I think that could be like an interesting take. It's a little difficult. But then if I just go one more step, I go, well, what about like Bill Nye, the science guy? You know, he's 90s. Well, but I think what you're doing is illustrating, though, that like I'll, you can say even a very specific pop culture reference and then with bob ross i said oh he feels 70s to me and oh he died in the 90s but it feels like in the 80s is when he was really had his heyday but also we all kind of came to like love him and he became ironic in like the late 90s and early 2000s and so there's a lot of different reference points for people even with a hyper specific pop culture reference yeah and so and in my treatment i talk about bill like i pitch bill nyback as the more 90s and also Honestly, it's a it's for a role that would a a non actor that would film themselves, and I was worried that they wouldn't quite nail Bob Ross. And Bob Ross has kind of been I've just seen a, a lot of parodies of Bob Ross in the last couple of years, and I I think the the more things that are out there lampooning something, the higher the bar gets of like what you have to do to nail it. And so I don't I haven't seen as much about Max Hedrum or about Bill Nye, even though Bill Nye is still active, you know. Um, and I thought Bill Nye, it was a much easier, the person that we're using as like a PhD type person. Anyway, I was like, why don't we like lean into that? But I, but I shared with them the Max Hedrum on the way. So in my treatment, there's a picture of Max Hedrum, there's a picture of Bill Nye and there's a picture of Bob Ross and there's kind of my thoughts on them. And so it's like, that's an example of me pitching a new idea, showing them how I got to that new idea, but also still respecting their original idea and, and saying, you know, if we do love Bob Ross let's think of what makes him that what's the 90s version of Bob Ross you know but the other thing that I will say is yes I do not include every image I find but I also have almost completely stopped using Google images to find images because I only include really good images and when I say really good I mean uh, either from commercials from TV shows from movies or professionally photographed and if I can't find one of those then I'll take a photo myself or I'll photoshop something but there is like a patina of like a premium experience when you're looking at my treatments I think because I'll never use an image that's like smaller than like a 720p image frame grab um, and if I do have to, then I'll put a, a few images on a page. Yeah, you're never blowing something up to where the pixels are misrepresented. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Except for in the '90s thing, I kind of felt like I could get away with it, and I was I was playing up. I would add like some VHS like distortion on top of it, things like that. But I try to mostly pull images from other from editorial photography or from other things because I do think like a crappy image can really ruin a treatment you know like if you're doing a commercial for escalate you know i worked on this escalate thing recently if you just took pictures of people uh, with their escalate that they've posted on instagram or you know maybe you could get away with it for like social media something here or there but you can't do a full page photo of somebody that took a picture of their escalate it's just not i think that's good. true i think that the maybe with casting i think i'm okay with pulling from social media because i feel like sometimes it's fun to get something that feels more candid or personal and obviously i think there's there's exceptions to the rule but i think the bigger picture the takeaway that i'm getting there's a couple big things 
One, I think your point about overall creating a sense of premium quality, showing that you pay attention to the details and that even in a treatment, even in a, in the, where the stakes are super low. Right. A document that like 10 people will at see most, at most. Probably four. You're getting the best images possible. Right. And, and that those are the only ones that are acceptable to you, I think is a really important thing. Yeah. And I'll even like Photoshop out the watermark, you know, like if it says something on the bottom right, if there's some text, if there's um, like I took this for the stream and I just did last week, I took this photo of Amy Schumer and Seth Rogen in a factory because it was about factories and they were holding up these Bud Light bottles. They're like, in, and they're wearing hard hats and they're in a factory and it's kind of this perfect image except I think that's a Super Bowl spot right? yeah I think yeah yeah except it says Bud Light so I took the Bud Light logo off and I replaced it with the you know the whatever whoever I was pitching for you know their logo so I'll just do little things like that to make it feel cohesive and then and the layout is super important to me like I will go into Photoshop and make an image wider with like a content aware fill or content aware scale or whatever because I want the text to it feels cramped or something, you know, on the layout and I, you know, f typography and all those things. So, though I do have a template I'm using now for my treatments and I'm pretty much have used it a lot lately. It's kind of like my comedy template. And I, I've realized there's no reason to like reinvent that every single time since it's never the same people are looking at it. Right. Right. And even if it is, then they know it's an Orrin Kaplan treatment. Um, the, the other thing that I think is important, and I feel like my opinion maybe is evolving during this conversation on this, but like when, when you and I first started doing this show, we were up for the same jobs all the time. And so when you start co-hosting a podcast with a person, you immediately unintentionally cause yourself to like compare yourself with the other person, right? Like we were constantly being scrutinized as like, like our name was like, well, our names were on the same list. It was like our, my reel versus yours. Sometimes you got the job. Sometimes I got the job. But as a result, you start thinking about, oh, what are the things that make me different? Right. And like analyzing it out loud over the course of five years on a podcast. Right. So it's this kind of unique, unique thing. And I think that like a therapy Session, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a therapy session plus uh, career advice. Um, but so as a result, I think that you have definitely, or maybe I've just noticed that you are, dig much, much deeper into the Photoshop aspects of it, the imagery aspects of, of something. And that for a long time, I really relied a lot on the phone call and uh, my writing abilities. That I, I was never going to you know, and we haven't been up for the same jobs kind of in a long time now. It's been probably a couple of years, like here and there. But for the most part, I think our paths have d diverged pretty significantly. But even still, you think like, okay, well, what am I good at? I'm good at writing, right? And so I think there are people at home who are like, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay at Photoshop, but I really am good at this thing or that. I'm a really great painter or I'm, I've got a really great personal story or whatever. And I think that it is essential that you continue to dial in and accentuate the things that you were great at, right? And to and to evolve those muscles the way Oren and I were forced to because we co-host a podcast together. But I think the other even more important thing is going back to that point I was making before of like being detail-oriented and showing and being thoughtful about every single aspect of 
the job because it starts with the treatment, but it goes all the way through and carries through. And this it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because the director's job in a lot of ways is to care and sweat the details harder than any other person it can or would. And also as a result, you become aware of more and more things that you can improve. Every time you think like, oh man, I've dialed it in. This font choice is really great. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, the kerning could be better. And that doesn't have a ton to do with directing, but what it does have to do with is being detail oriented and artistic and thoughtful. And that, that ability to hone in on a, a, a teeny tiny detail and make it better is the job. Yeah. And I, I, do think it has to do with directing. I think it's a visual right, that's medium. What I'm yeah, yeah, sure. Like, yeah. A lot of times, I'll say to editors or a font motion graphics person or something, I'll say like, I'll show them references. I'll say, let's look at Mad Men. And you know, this actually happened to me. I worked for the Fine Brothers on the series. Obviously, you know them. You worked with them too. I ran the post for this uh, web series they did called My Music years ago. And they literally, we submitted the first episode, the pilot episode. I thought it was awesome. It was so funny. It had all these cool graphics and visual effects. And, you know, Grace Helbig was in just an awesome cast. And I just thought it landed so well. And they sent me back a scene from Mad Men. And they said, study how this is edited. How they use the wide shots and the close-up shots. When they cut. What, you know, they never cut in the middle of a word. They rarely ever, ever, ever have the camera on the person that's not speaking. You know, they'll cut to a reaction. And it was a much slower pace of editing that they wanted because I was really pushing for a zany YouTube sketchy type of edit. And, you know, whether I agree with them or not, I did learn a lot of stuff on that job about that and about looking at references and about look at, you know, how does Christopher Nolan do things? You know, how does Ava DuVernay edit this scene? How do they shoot this? How do they frame it? Like, look at the very best things that you like and notice that the fonts that Tarantino uses in the beginning of his movies, all those little details add up. I guarantee you, Ava DuVernay is never like, yeah, that's fine. I like that font. Let's just go with it. You know, those people that are the great directors, they really, you know, like you you hear um, Ryan Coogler talk about the use of color and wardrobe on his movies and like what it represents. It's not like him just being highfalutin or fancy. He's not saying it in a pretentious way. He's excited because he's found a way to communicate visually. And the treatment, yes, not barely anyone sees it, it but it's it's your first introduction to these people of like how you work. And it, be- it becomes a part of your process. Yeah. So by the time I get the job, I have almost nothing left to do sometimes because I've figured most of the things that, at the treatment phase. Uh, obviously, it's a bummer when you've worked on this for a week and you don't get the job and it happens over and over and over again. And it, that happened to me so many times that I got so sick of it that now my philosophy is I have to win the job. They have to see that I am going to work 10 times as hard as the next person. I'm going to pull more images, do more references. It's not just the images are good. It's not just the layout is like is comfortable. The writing should be in tone and funny and sharp and flow. You need to have good energy, which is probably my weakest place and a thing I can work on is keeping my energy up on a phone call. But I am always listening and I am always trying to bring up things that maybe they haven't thought of and get their opinion. And, you know, I have my kind of magic bullet question for the end of every call, which has also really helped me with my treatments. It's a super obvious question once you hear it, but a lot of people don't ask it. (laughs) 
And when I ask it, people are like, oh, interesting question. What What is the question? Or? <laughs> I'll tell you on the next episode of Just Shoot It. Now for a word from our sponsor. No, the question is, what would you like me to focus on in the treatment? What are you looking to a director to help you figure out? It's funny. I always, since we've talked about that probably a year, maybe even two ago, I say that on the call and it has never worked once. <laughs> well, how they're, they're always like, ah, yeah, I don't know. This seems fine. It's so funny to me. I, and maybe it's just the way that I present it or something like that. But it, all of which is to say, I think. Well, can I give you an example of a project that I know you worked on recently and how you could maybe form that question at the end? It, it's a not a good example. It's not a realistic example. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. So let's say you had a project where you knew that all the actors you're going to film are filming remotely. Right. And you're fighting to get this job. Let's say you're on a call with the producer and they're considering a few different directors and you say to them, you know, and let's say they want a treatment. We're going to have everyone just kind of put together a document telling us how they want to shoot this. A question you could ask them is like, great, I'm super excited. Of course, I'm going to write about the tone and the performances and the story. But do you think that figuring out the logistics of how we're going to time this out is something that's important for you for me to address in the treatment? Or is that something more logistical, producerial that we'll figure out later and not really part of the elements of how you're choosing a director. Is that something you're looking for to me to, to help solve or, or not? Yeah, yeah, because the worst thing is when you spend your treatment trying to solve a problem that is something they don't want solved. They've got it covered. They're yeah. like, yeah, we hire the company. They do it all. They take care of it. Yeah. And, and I think that the call, uh, besides vibing, it is about sussing those things out. Like, which direction are they leaning? Because sometimes there's two very... Sometimes it's the McMansion version and sometimes it's the Cottage version. And sometimes the call is so that you can kind of whittle that down a little bit faster. But I think that the big, broad point still stands of, like, leaning into your core competencies but forcing yourself to get better at all of those things that maybe you're you know a little hesitant to to dive in on and then showing them that that's a thing that you are great at or that you're you're tuned into is the way that you elevate your work and you elevate your job and that even though no one's ever going to be like hey Oren, great kerning on that deck man so good subliminally they're going to understand that you have a better sense of design and no one has ever told you know Tarantino how good the kerning is in you know the titles to his movie but you get a sense of like oh this movie is thoughtful and put together and every single aspect means something and so I, what you're saying is honing that discipline and digging as deep as you possibly can from the very beginning of the project is going to serve you well no matter what yeah it's great advice in the so film good. industry one of the biggest things that you are selling is your own taste and I remember when I applied for AFI and I went for my interview there and they asked me what my favorite movies were. And I just thought that was just such a dumb question. I'm sure they probably asked you something similar at USC. Th that, that is the question you get basically at every general too. They're just saying, hey, what, what do you want to make? What do you like? What's interesting? Right. And they don't really care if you say Wonder Woman or, you know, uh, The Bicycle Thief. What they want to know is why and how and they want to see that you care about things. And that's that's everything here. And so when you show a treatment that's got some bad images in it or you act like you don't really care, you probably won't get the job. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my 
theory on treatments from just working on four of them this week. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I hope you book all of those jobs and you learn all sorts of other things. So kind of going off the, the treatment tip, I, something else I've experienced in a few different projects recently is I have gotten a job. And because, you know, I've shown all these various images, people all think that I'm on exactly the same page as them. And once we start working on the job, I realize that the creative team is pushing things kind of in the opposite direction that I want to push it in. And especially now with COVID, sometimes they're writing things and pitching things and coming up with ideas that are very time consuming and potentially expensive for our budget. And they are made even harder because of COVID regulations and restrictions and how close we can put actors to each other and how many hours we can work. And I'm having trouble figuring out how much I should push back and how much I should just do it knowing that the final product isn't going to be as good as I think it will be. I mean, obviously many times I'm wrong. I'm like, that's not going to work. And then we shoot it and it works. And it's the best part of the thing. Like that's happened to me so many times, but also I feel like they chose me because they liked my approach. And then once I get hired, they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. That, that idea is not working. The client doesn't like it anymore. We're going to do this whole new thing. And since you have no line to the client or anything, you can't really argue. Yeah. So I I hear two different things, right? There's the creative divergence, right? Which I think happens all the time. There's a new idea. There's, uh, you know, talent doesn't like this joke or whatever that, and that, that can be really frustrating and really tricky. And you, you know, halfway through prep, you're like, wait, this is a totally different campaign than I was originally, than I pitched on. If you look at the wonderful treatment that you put together, it's like completely irrelevant at a certain point. That happens, right? And I always joke that they don't pay me to shoot it. They pay me to take notes. And unfortunately, sometimes the note-taking process happens earlier and earlier. And it, it look, it's really tricky, especially if you, you know, if it's a new company and you want to make a good impression, you want to get hired again, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that. But then there's also the fallout of what happens to your production team and all of the prep that you have done. And so there's real consequences to the amount of work that can be done in the amount of time you have before you shoot, how much that stuff costs, how feasible the production schedule will become as a result, and how hard it will be on your team to pivot, basically. And that's something that I've, I've lived through many, many times as well, where you're like, oh, this is a good idea. It's you know, we've got $200,000 for this spot and you're pitching a million dollar idea. Yeah. Or they're showing you references from like a JJ Abrams film. Like, let's do it like this. This is so funny. You know, they did this on Broad City or whatever. And you're like, well, they had 10 times as much money as us. An amazing cast. Yeah, no, no doubt. I think in both cases... When it's a new relationship, it's especially tricky, but like it's all about laying the groundwork of showing them that you know what you're talking about and collaborating with the production team. I think it's it's the thing that I think there's a downside to being as production oriented as you and I both are. Like we're really oftentimes pretty good friends with our line producer and that whole team. We're really hands on and I think it helps the ultimate product really well. But as a result, sometimes you're burdened with the understanding and knowledge of what it's going to do to the budget or the team or the margins when a great creative idea becomes expensive. But I think in this situation, you can, 
I often will be like, okay, well, look, I think that's a really interesting idea. Let me work with the team real quick to find out how much it's actually going to cost because it's different than what was originally spec'd out. And then you guys can make a decision. If it's an overage that's too expensive, that's okay because we've still got a great plan. That's like a pretty solid move. And sometimes they're like, oh boy, this is too expensive. And sometimes yeah. they're like, well, see, no, my let's issue is that it's, I feel like we're, yes, we could find the money to do it. We're, we'll take it from here. We'll do that. But we don't actually have the time to do it properly. You know, um, something that you see. Pe- and when you say properly, you don't mean like hitting some OT. You mean like, oh, this should take two days. And we have, this is, we're shooting two spots in this day. And that's a single day shoot, basically. Like it's literally like there's well, just like, not for example, time or what somebody, you know, I've, I've worked on many projects where a copywriter will write something like, you know, we see them painting on a canvas. We don't see what's on the canvas. Then they turn the canvas around and it's an amazing masterpiece, Da Vinci-esque portrait of everyone in the room sitting at a table okay right and you don't have the cast and it's a one second joke even if you have the cast if you want it if the joke is that it's such an amazing painting of the scene that we're seeing so we can either you know make the painting and have it on set and try to match the framing of the painting to what we're shooting on set and hope all the actors and the colors or we can try to do it in post and photoshop and it's a visual effect shot and Sometimes it's like for a two second joke, right? The joke, it's like a, a series of 20 funny things that happen. One of them is this. Now, my art department needs to hire my production designer is not a master, you know, painter from Italy. You know, she's going to have to go find somebody that can paint this, that can do this. The producer is going to say, well, that's too expensive. We need this done by two days. Can't we just take a photo and Photoshop? Some? And you're doing all these things. And at the end of the day, you're like, okay, here's the picture. And you show it to the client and the creative team. And they're like, that's not good. And so you yourself are up all night trying to learn Photoshop painting filters to do things. So instead of like getting the blocking right, instead of the important things, you are now feeling so bad that you're not delivering on the idea of this creative person that just wrote this thing because they thought it was like the funniest thing that ever written. And, and then you get to set and you shoot it, but the lighting's not quite right. And the client is like upset that the you know can that jesus is holding and and maybe maybe the the for instance maybe because that joke sounds pretty good um like like a worse joke do you know what i mean well to me it's like it's it's fine but it's not a we've seen it a bazillion times and b it's not worth like if you have a big budget if you're doing amazon's the boys and you have an art team of 50 people it's great if you have an art team of two people and one of them is trying to build a set the other one's shopping and now all of a sudden you need a masterpiece painting it's just that is the entire it, from day one, the commercial should have been about this painting. If it was a Geico commercial, it would be, hey, there's five funny paintings in this. And that's where we're going to spend our money. But when you throw it on as like, a, oh, I, the client pitches jokes. So we told them, yeah, we'll do it. It's either going to be crappy and then it's going to you're going to pull your hair out on it. And then it's going to be edited out of the commercial. And you spent you went into overtime and you spent all these resources making it. So it's I guess that's like my thing. And my question to you is like, are you ever in a place where you're like, hey, we can do this. It's just not going to be that great. It's not going to be as great as you're picturing, you know? You know, on the job, unfortunately, the the answer was the reverse. On on this last job, I was really lucky. We had this oneer. You're familiar with the shot, actually. But it's like a oneer where like, you know, uh, you crane up and like the camera pans up and you see, you re- reveal that something is super duper tall and it's supposed to look really cool and dramatic. And we had it uh, built to be on a Jimmy Jib 
and we were like, okay, well, maybe we can go ahead and, um, which is, you know, a stationary single length jib, basically. So you can get super cool shots with that, but like it doesn't telescope basically the way a technocrane does. And I was like, hey guys, I know the shot that we're all thinking of right now. We should get a technocrane. And then they did. But the opposite has happened many, many times where I've been like, hey, the, most of the time it doesn't happen that way. But but the th- I can I mean, the other example that I have and you probably have, too, is when you're working on a lower budget commercial of sorts or branded something where there's a brand involved. It's going to be Quiznos. There's going to be a picture of a, a shot of a sandwich or Cadillac. There's going to be a shot of a, ca- a car. And the people tell you, by the way, they know this is low budget. They're not gonna, they're not gonna be picky about what the sandwich looks like. Just, just do a quick shot of the sandwich. Just do a quick shot of the car coming in. It's like uh, they're wrong a hundred percent of the time. So if someone from Cadillac, if someone from Quiznos, if someone from, I mean, I did this Charmin Ultra toilet paper thing years ago. Just the way that the Charmin bag was held, we must have done like fifty takes until they felt happy about it. Don't tell me they're not gonna care about what this product looks like because they, they are gonna care. And even if I say, by the way, we can fix this in VFX in like two minutes, it's the easiest thing. They'll be like, no, we're on set. Let's just get it right. And it's going to eat into all the other cool things that you wanted to do. They flew a couple people out, like somebody staying in a hotel downtown to make sure that that Charmin looks good. Yeah. Or they're just on a Zoom, which is more my my more recent experience. Yeah. Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that, look, I think it's all about building goodwill with people right because the in the instance where i did get my technocrane we'd been through the ringer on things through through all sorts of different reasons all sorts of different circumstances and i didn't put my foot down ever really i just was like hey this is gonna make this better this is gonna make this worse and just like you know put my back into it and sometimes that that works out and sometimes you inadvertently end up trying to do the impossible, which is what I think you're you're talking about. Really, it's just like you know, there's only so you're much time in fail. the day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you know, like okay, they'll give me the technocrane, they'll give me all this stuff, but they will have color done by their in-house, you know, person. You're cutting a corner somewhere. Yeah, you're cutting a corner at the worst spot at the very end. Actually, I just heard a good interview on Jordan's podcast about that, about um, with Kevin Berlandi, who is a listener of our podcast and a friend who made these spec spots and finished them at the best color houses in Hollywood because he knew that it's the last step of what you're making that's the most important. It's the step before everyone sees it. And you got to get a good sound mix and you got to get a good color pass, you know, if you want to make something that's awesome, that's at the level of the other things you look at that are awesome. So Yeah, well, look, I, I don't have a great answer for you, but I think that the, the maybe the recurring theme of this episode is that the more experienced you become... And the more dialed in your taste becomes and your skill set becomes and your standards become. The more disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Or just the the more opportunities there are for you to know exactly how you want to do something. And, you know, sometimes that matches the job and sometimes it doesn't. And so that can be frustrating and disappointing because we spent our entire lives getting good enough at something to notice a thing that no one else notices and we're the only ones who are like this is unacceptable how could you let this happen like we're all here working our butts off and they're like calm down dude (laughs) yeah yeah and i apologize for turning this catch-up episode into a venting session it's just i mean i um, I did you know we've both been on uh the same side of that but like i said i think that it's about refining your your sensibilities right and so like even if you're at the beginning of your career 
or like maybe a year in, you can look back on stuff and be like, oh boy, I wish I'd done it differently or whatever. But on this last job, I literally had nightmares two nights in a row of like, why didn't I get coverage on this shot? If I'd done it this way, I would have been faster. Like, you know, it's just, it, that's the nature. The better you get, the the more things you see that you would improve. Well, the last thing I'll say about this is something I already told you off mic, but I think it's interesting to hear on mic is that I was listening to the Roger Deakins podcast and he was talking about how he cannot stand watching his movies. This is the, you know, the guy that shot Blade Runner and Shawshank Redemption and he watches them and he thinks they are just the worst looking things ever. And the grade is wrong and he wishes he didn't do, he framed things differently. So if he is thinking this about some of the best movies ever made in the history of time, then maybe it's normal that we are not perfectly satisfied with everything we do. Well, and I think on the topic of wanting to refine things and improve things, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about setiquette and micromanaging, um, because I think that for every single thing that is put in front of the camera, there are a couple thousand different ways to do it. And I think that you and I both over the years have had a chance to work with all sorts of different crews. Sometimes they're here local and, you know, the your regular collaborators are booked on a job. Sometimes you're on a travel job and everyone else is local. And um and it's a really cool opportunity to learn the way other people do things and like kind of take pick up some tips and tricks and uh you know, like different moves. And also you as you again become more experienced, you become more accustomed to and set in certain ways basically it's like there's a little bit of like well that's not how my normal team does it and so you know like i said i've having worked with a couple different teams just recently um and then coming off of the thing that i did at the top of the year that was a hundred percent like all my top choices it, it's been a really stark comparison in terms of like the way that i like to do things is the way that i hire people to do them and then there's something totally different now. And so I guess that fallout is a ton of different things. Sometimes things are more efficient. Sometimes they're just less efficient. Sometimes they're just different, you know, and it takes you a second to catch up or realize or, or catch what sort of waves or shorthand people are throwing out, what vibes there are on set. And so I've been thinking a lot about just the nature of collaborating and also what my personal line is for how I want to set standards for things on set, how I want to micromanage things and what is just like, Hey man, just let it happen. And you know, I'm sure it'll turn out. Okay. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying that when you're with a new crew and they're doing things differently, do you tell them to do things the way you want them to do them? Or do you just let it fly? What I guess my move usually is to just talk to the producer and I'll say, Hey, just so you know, I like it when you know things are done in a certain way or when the call sheet comes out at, at this time uh, I guess with an AD it would happen a lot right I think the most typical thing that you see change over different crew members is you have ADs that call action right they say camera sound action that's a great easy example that's like just right you can't ignore it right immediately that's happening on this this most recent job, it was a new ID, and uh, he called action the first take. And I was like, hey, I'll call action from now on. And then kind of about halfway through, there was a natural moment where I was like, you go ahead and call action again. Because it was like there was background, there was a stunt, there was like some special effects. It was just like, oh, there's a lot of stuff. 
and I just want to be looking at the monitor. But it was an interesting point of like, I, I like to call action because it sets the, it's the last option to set tone of like what, how you want things to feel in a take. But there's a lot of other, st- there's a good reason to not call action. There's a lot of stuff to juggle. And sometimes I just want to be paying attention to the monitor exclusively. For sure. The other day, my wife was, I was putting her on tape for an audition. She was auditioning to play a QVC host. And so right before we did a take, we'd be like, okay, are you ready? And smile, please. And action. And I knew that annoyed her that I said that, but it was like kind of done on purpose because <laughs> I feel like those QVC people, they a lot of times start with this kind of fake annoyed smile <laughs> at the top. And I, it, it was for a comedy thing too, which I felt like it was right for. But yeah, you're right. When you do get to say action, there is something like, okay, ready and action. You yeah, know? yeah, you're setting a tempo, you're setting a mood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when you're choreographing a lot of things, it's sometimes so much easier when someone else is taking care of the timing. That's something I mess up all the time because I'm always trying to be in charge of timing. So I'm always like, okay, ready? And Dolly and Pan and Action Mike and Matt. I'm like, no, Matt, you should have gone. And they're like, what'd you think of the shot? I'm like, I have no idea. I was just worried about the time. Yeah, yeah. I was, I, was, I was like making eye contact with my dolly grip to make sure that he was ready. Yeah. And, and that's just a microcosm of the thousands of different things that different crews do differently. And I was, I was talking to a good friend today about how they were at one studio and especially with all of the COVID changes, like they're, everyone's comparing notes and how one studio does it totally different than another studio and does it different from another studio. And why is it that they do it this way and all of that stuff. So it, it, culturally it's, it's interesting how you kind of just inherit a way of working. There's not a ton of standards Yeah, you know, we all call action you know, we all have, you know, production reports at the end of the day. There's a union requirements and stuff. But there's a lot of cultural things that you just pick up because you worked at WB for 10 years or you freelanced at uh, Internet Comedy Place for 10 years or whatever, you know. I could definitely get better at this. But I think one thing is just thinking from like a selfish director point of view, like who are you interacting with on set? You got AD, DP, art department and actors, right? So I'm usually pretty good with the AD having a conversation at the beginning of the day and saying like, Hey, this is how I knew. Can you make sure they're, you know, setting this up while we're doing, you know, things like that. The production designer, what I should tell them all is because this is my style is by the way, if we need some art thing changed, like I'll just say art. And if nobody answers, I'm going to move it. Just know that don't be offended, but we're probably going to be behind all day. And that's just like how I work. Also, um, sometimes you don't know the name of the person who, who, who's <laughs> right. props, basically. So like when you need to reset something, you want to adjust something, you always like I always feel like such a freaking jerk if I'm calling property or props. You know, like, yeah. I, like I like I to address say, people right, with names. Right, yeah. right, right. right. And, or if and there's again, an AD there, I'll say to the AD, like, hey, can can you guys get this table moved or whatever? And because you typically work with your favorite people all the time, you can be like, hey, Liz, help me out with this, right? Like it's easy to to have that shorthand and they know you don't need to tell them, hey guys, I like to move art around a little bit. Please don't be offended. I'm trying to keep you focused on the other 10,000 things you need to do and I don't need to tell you yeah, to clock no. something. With your crew, it's a totally different thing. But with a new crew, like with a new DP, I almost always tell them like, just so you know, I like to be by the camera. I'm going to be looking over your shoulder. I might touch the camera a little bit like, it has nothing to do with you. It's just, that's just how I am, like kind of tactile like that, you know? And I might ask you what your white balance is or what your lens is and don't be offended. doesn't mean I don't like the shot. It literally just means I want to just understand more. because that's yeah. how I think of yeah. things. And and so we have learned over the years, like, oh, the, there are things that we interact with 
there are things that like you kind of have your laundry list of like I like to tell a DP like give me the whole display I want to know how much time's on your card I want to know how much battery life you've got I want to know all of that stuff because it informs my process I'm not going to be mad about a bunch of displays on the screen you have your laundry list of things you kind of like tell new people but there again there's so many other things that you don't realize are different until you're on a different set you know yeah I mean I guess it's just you have to dial it in on a personal level to figure out things but I, I remember hearing about director friends who were like yeah I spent half my time you know working with production to get it done the way I like to get it done and I remember just thinking like boy what control freaks right like they're gonna fill out the paperwork just fine dude like your props are gonna be there don't worry about it and I guess going back to your point about treatments the way that you do one thing is the way you do everything and so just kind of indoctrinating a team and learning from them but dialing in specifically the way you like to do things is a thing that i'm trying my hardest to kind of expand out from those typical conversations that you would have with crew members i try to some i mean this is a jerk move but sometimes i try to just push the onus on like someone else like a producer will be like oh yeah i got an art person and i'll be like okay do you think they're amazing art an amazing art person that i'm gonna love and is great and can do things and can I see their real please? And like, I try to make them feel like if, it, if they're not good, that they're, it's, well, they're you know, involved in I, that. I know? think it's important though, that I'd say it's not like every, every crew member that I have worked with for the most part, for the vast, vast majority of them are awesome. I'm saying that we speak different languages or just have different habits. I'm really talking about habits. I'm talking about communication styles. I'm talking about uh, workflows. That's what I'm talking. It's not really, it's, it's in no mean, I hope it be everybody listening at home. It's not about the quality of the work or, or the personality of the person. It's about my expectations and their expectations based off of their, our history, our mutual histories working basically. Like early on, I was like, I want to go as soon as I say cut moving on. I want to walk straight into blocking rehearsal. So don't don't go pick up your keys. Don't go pee. We are going straight there. And it doesn't matter if you're in the wrong wardrobe or if the pie that we're about to throw isn't there. Pantomime it, right? Like, But setting those standards early is the thing that I'm constantly thinking about. No, that's smart. I mean, I have definitely just worked with crew people that aren't at the level that I need them to be. I mean, my best example is like uh, first ACs. And it, they're probably the ones that like me the least on set because if like a shot is soft twice in a row and I don't see them like getting out and measuring things or asking the DP to show them, you know, that, that really bugs me because, you know, you're trying to get so many things perfect on the take. And if focus is wrong three times, then we need a new AC. <laughs> it's kind of my, my take out. Even it, or, or they can say like, look, you're, we're wide open. They're running towards us. It's a really hard thing. And sometimes the DP will say like, hey, just so you know, and this is like a really hard shot to pull focus on. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know. a, a good DP will look out for their crew in that way. Like, yeah. And and I'll do the thing. Sometimes I'll be like, hey, I'm sorry. Do we need to set marks? I won't say it. that sounds quite sarcastic and rude, but like, hey, do you need to see it again? Like, let what if I see it? If it's hard for some reason, you know, I try to. Yeah, I guess I'll do that the first two times. But if we're like second half of the day and I'm still saying that, I'm like no longer saying it in a nice way. And if it's a multi-day shoot, then 
Hopefully we have a different AC tomorrow. <laughs> well, you know what I... That's, a, that's as jerky as I get, though. It's just, <laughs> just those things where I expect everyone on set to do their job at least at the same level that I could do it, you know? Yeah, sure. Boy, spoken like a true director, <laughs> huh? Sorry. Um, no, no, no. No, you know... If, I, if it, Look, if I'm making my short film and everyone's working for free, it's one thing. But when we're paying people their rates, you know, commercial rates, I expect... You know, yeah, to know what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, it's funny. It makes me think of a thing that we were talking about before I, I booked this gig. It's like the higher up you get, in a certain sense, the easier the job becomes because you can just hire the most expensive people that you have collaborated with and who are like the most dependable. You know, like. Once you're no longer skimping on things, in a certain sense, you kind of amortize responsibility in a way that's really funny. And yeah, so, like at some point, you get to not be the one that's worried about the kerning or worried about if this painting looks like a masterpiece because you know that your production designer is, is taking care of that and you don't have to even think about it. And, and that they have the resources for it. And so, you know, we're really talking about the privilege of being a director ultimately in, in this thing where I'm talking about micromanaging is it's like you get babied you get used to not thinking about something and so when it's different all of a sudden it calls into question oh is this the way i want it to be done or is this is it my problem or is this a better way of doing it and right. so because you're the only person on that set whose next job depends on how good this job is everyone else it does not matter at all you know maybe the producer maybe the dp potentially an actor but like really it's you if this sucks, no matter whose bad idea it was that made it bad or whose things are out of focus or the art's wrong, it's like you're the one that just spent weeks or months or whatever on this thing and it's like not what you wanted it to, not not meeting its potential. So that's why, yeah, I never feel like I'm baby dancer. I mean, sometimes people are very nice to me, obviously. Uh, like People laugh at your jokes and mine much more <laughs> on set. Much more yeah, on set. They surprisingly never laugh. Nobody <laughs>, laughs at any of my jokes um, on set, usually because they have no idea who I am. And they're yeah. like, what? Yeah, Is yeah. that a joke? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyway, I love, I love my crew. I love the people I work with. And I try to bring them along with me because of, exactly because of what you say. But when I can't, it's, you know. And that's when you, you got to communicate extra, extra, extra stuff. And I know you just worked with a new cinematographer and it went really well. And it, it took you a while to like figure out the questions to ask and the stuff to look at. And so it, it totally can, I, I'm a big believer in like always working with new people and trying to find new people, but yeah, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity. It's not an easy, yeah, yeah. it's not like a trivial thing. Like, Oh yeah, we can just have any production designer no big deal it reminds me of a thing that we, i think we've talked about on this show but bears repeating and i think it's that the longer you're at this the less satisfying i told you so as a phrase becomes to the to at this point like it's literally the worst thing you could possibly say like i could say i i hate i told you so i hate the feeling i hate the thought of i told you so i actually love the reverse i told you so where you're like this isn't gonna look good and then you shoot it and you're like oh that look does look pretty good and then the producer's like told you so yeah that's sure that's favorite, great told you so. yeah yeah if you're da if you're second guessing somebody who knows what they're talking about or or are there there's a little bit of like let me show it to you it's like the maybe the more collaborative 
way of of doing that like let, let, let me should let me audition this for you and then you're like oh i'm surprised by that i'm open to that all the time when i say i told you so it's just when i don't insist on something being done a certain way and then it falls apart the way that i knew it was going to fall apart that only hurts me so there's no satisfaction there's no schadenfreude it's just if the only thing you can do is get it right that's the only good feeling and that's that's why directors can be you know pushy sometimes is because we've had it gone wrong a couple times you know yeah well cool i hope uh people got something out of us just talking about our own personal problems <laughs> for an hour if you are listening to this and you can relate in some way please email us at just shoot a pot at gmail.com or call us one two six two shoot one we'd love to hear other people's stories takes on pitching on pre-production on production on i told you so's if you learn something i feel like listeners oftentimes will tell us that they really like these catch-up episodes and at the end of every episode we're like boy i just it feels like i just complained i hope i can't imagine any my our wives certainly don't want to listen to this episode no my wife doesn't listen to any episode (laughs) um but yeah i think I don't know. I, I think these episodes are fun. I, if, but please, please, please let us know if you agree because uh, we haven't done that many of them recently and we uh, can easily not do more of them or we, we can do more of them. But yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Let's hop into some unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. Totally straightforward. There are two Madden Low classics. One, I rewatched E.T. tonight. Holds up. I figured out why E.T. gets sick. Uh, E.T. gets sick from all the smoke inhalation because there's so much atmosphere and all of those friggin' shots. It's just haze everywhere nonstop. It is absurd how much haze is in that movie. Um, So that's just a fun thing, too. Is this a true thing or this is a joke? No, it's a joke. Well, it's true that there's a lot of haze in Steven Spielberg movies, generally speaking. But especially like the early scenes in that movie, it's just like you can't see a, an inch in front of your face. There's so much atmosphere in those rooms. So that was it was a bad joke about uh, how much atmosphere is in those rooms. In, well, in the Spielberg movie. knows how to how to haze a room. <laughs> he, you know really, I mean. he really does. Um, uh, but more importantly, my other bigger, more holiday appropriate unpaid endorsement is the movie Ed Wood. Orin, have you ever seen Ed Wood? Uh, I believe I have. Johnny Depp? Johnny Depp, 20 years old, even older, actually. And I, it had been a long, long time since I'd seen it, so to the point where it was like uh, basically brand new to me. Um, but in rewatching it, I remembered how formative it was because the first time I saw it, I was like, probably, I maybe had been accepted to film school, maybe not. I think I, think I probably had been. I knew I was moving to Los Angeles. And like watching that film... It helped me form my understanding of what I thought a filmmaking career and life would be like and what I aspired to, like to have like a merry band of misfit collaborators was what I had dreamt of. And let me tell you, rewatching it, you relate to Ed Wood in ways that I was surprised by for sure. Like my wife and I were like, oh, this is almost too real. Wow. Um, is it in black and white? It's in black and white. It's really they, I, mean, I heard they had to make it black and white because it was too real. <laughs> yeah, it was too close to home for uh, independent filmmakers struggling I'll check out, it out. Here He's a real person, right? Ed Wood was a yeah, yeah. famous he was kind of yeah. Foreman-esque 
director. Exactly. Yeah. He made arguably the worst movie of all time, Plan 9 from Outer Space, which kind of became a cult hit. And then, you know, um, but also he was a transvestite. He had his like collaborators had like he had a psychic who would be in his movies. He had a giant wrestler that, you know, according to the film, he saw at a wrestling match and he was one of the monsters. He w- became friends with Bella Lugosi. And it's a lot about that friendship and like the woman who inspired Elvira. Um, so anyway, it's pretty great. Where uh, did you watch it? Criterion? On, on DVD. Oh, my God. Of course. <laughs> Of course you did. Of course you're not going to give me any easy way to watch it. Well, while we're at it, I'll endorse one other thing. If you're curious about my favorite way to figure out how to watch a film, Just Watch, which is tied into Letterboxd, or the, uh, the social media app that I've talked about on the show before. Um, but Just Watch is my favorite way of figuring out on what platform something is or is not streaming so for instance oh, that is a genius thing i can't believe this exists and i didn't know about it oh yeah just watch is the best I, i'm a letterbox pro subscriber because it lets you customize what um platforms you're subscribed to if you do it through just watch so uh looks like you can rent it on apple tv for 2.99 um that seems like that's the best deal so ed wood Check it out, everyone. Wow. And justwatch.com. Wow. If you want to see a movie and you want to see if you can stream it for free anywhere. And then the you it. can post uh, your review on Letterboxd. It all integrates, man. It's pretty great. Okay. I'm going to start off with a real quickie. So you know how during COVID, like everyone has a friend that says, oh, you know what? My friend makes masks. You should buy some from her. So we had a friend that said that to us. Like, oh, get your daughter a mask. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh, and then we checked out the website and it's like way overpriced masks. And I was like, this is junk. Anyway, she gave us a free mask. We ended up buying five more. They're amazing because if you have a kid, you should check out shopminerthread.com. It's these masks that you can pull them down and they just stay on your neck. And the problem with kids is like the putting the mask on and off and on. My daughter's four. She loves it. She can wear it all day. Like she takes it off. She puts it back on by herself and everything. If you have a kid and you're having trouble finding a mask that fits them, that like they don't lose or they don't drop, check out shopminerthread.com. I don't really know this person or anything. I have no real personal connection except it's a friend of a friend. But uh, but yeah, they're awesome. So check it out. So two other things, both of which I've already spoken to you, Matt, about, but I'm going to tell people is <laughs> in my research for one of my treatments, I found this YouTube channel called New Bliss. And I guess there's a, a bunch of channels like this. This is N-E-W new bliss b-l-i-s-s it's an artist that makes these like three hour videos uh and they they're made in blender uh my favorite 3d program and this artist models these like beautiful interior like cottages ski chalets libraries like great halls just these really kind of classic places and they make the soundtrack and music and it's either rain or it's jazz or it's you just kind of feel like you're hanging out in this place. You can just put it on YouTube while you're writing, while you're working, while you're trying to trying to focus on anything. It's kind of like a calm meditation, or what did you reference the chill beats on yeah. Spotify or something? Uh, well, no, there's the the YouTube channel that's just like a live stream. It's a uh, lo-fi hip hop radio beats to relax slash study to, and that this is like. This is like the super famous one. It's a live stream that's just happening nonstop. Right now, 30,000 people are listening to it. But it's like the, you know. Oh, wow. So you just listen to it while you're working on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just kind of like mellow, ambient sort of uh, chill lo-fi beats to study or relax to. 
That's a good one too. Yeah. So new bliss is like fireplaces and jazz or, or rain, or just environmental stuff. And it, it's like edging close to ASMR, which I know is weird, but I kind of enjoyed working while I was listening to this thing. So check it out. New bliss. There have been studies about like white noise or just kind of ambient noise being really helpful for people to study. Like the, the, the coffee shop sound thing is real. Right. Yeah, and I found all these videos of rain. They're like, sleep to this video. But the other thing is this artist who I showed you his work today. I saw on Twitter. His name is Alfie Dwyer. His Instagram is ze.zima. And he makes like the most insane visual things. Also a Blender artist, uh, of course. But he made these Eric Andre promos that are just mind-bogglingly awesome uh, if you go to his Instagram page, ze.zima, you can see them or just, you know, look up Eric Andre on Twitter. I think he posted a bunch of them. But anyway, just amazing stuff. And, you know, we, you know, the Kruger Dunning effect. We've talked about that before where you start a new skill and you feel like you're really good at it and you're getting great at it really fast. And then at some point you realize you're just like just a baby on the your path to getting good at something. When I see his stuff, I'm like, how will I ever be as good of an artist as this guy? He's just so like a million years ahead of me. And, you know, he's probably like 25 years old. But Alfie Dwyer, he's awesome. Okay, that's it. That's all I got hey, to endorse. We did it. Uh, well, thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have more questions, comments, concerns, if you want to... Endorsements. Uh, en- endorsements. Yeah, we love an endorsement. Even a guest recommendation here or there. Hit us up across all social media at Just Shoot a Pod on Gmail at JustShootAPod at gmail.com. Our phone number is 262-SHOOT1. And you can follow me at Mr. Madden, though. And I'm at O'Kaplan on Instagram. And I'm at SmiteyPileg on Twitter. And this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And our social media master is Derek Aiello. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And hey, if you're bored today, go rate us on iTunes. But what are the chances anyone listens to the last 10 seconds of any podcast ever? Maybe they're driving. Anyway, drive safe, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.